Eric Shesky's weekly You Demon. This Catholic dude abides. So sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. the weekly demon is also with you maybe that's not so far out who knows the show today we're going to jump back into the middle ages and Taoism. also going to be talking about masturbation so you may want to uh, cover young people's ears we're going to talk about sex jokes and a few other things i hope you enjoy the show well probably the biggest news out there in the past week uh, things that are you demon type material is an article in the Atlantic Monthly that said high schoolers are having less sex than they were back in 1991 according to this article uh, the percentage of high school students who'd had intercourse dropped from 54 to 40 percent from 1991 to 2017 that had, quite frankly shocked me I hear I hear a lot of stories from my kids about the high school hookup culture and I'm just stunned at what I hear. But then uh, the like Monthly goes in to start trying to explain the reasons why. And they said that it looks like masturbation is on the rise. From 1992 to 2014, the share of American men who reported masturbating in a given week doubled to 54%. So that's a fine state of affairs. So instead of uh, banging chicks, guys are out there masturbating instead. Quite frankly, from a Catholic perspective, let's just be very clear. If you're masturbating or fornicating, or committing adultery. It's all grave matter, and therefore is potentially a mortal sin, depending on your maturity level, and whether you do it with full consent of the will. So, if you're going to masturbate, you might as well go bang some hot milf. Okay, if you're some, if you're 18 years old, and those, you know, you're going to have sex, that wouldn't waste it masturbating, okay? Be smart about it, and go bang some hot married woman. Now, of course... I mean, if you're banging a female, you're now bringing her into your sin as well. And if she's married, obviously, now you're impacting her husband as well. So there are some differences, but you're going to hell for all of them. So that, that's that's the key takeaway here. Now, I would say, though, there are some quote-unquote theologians who argue that masturbation is worse than having sex outside of marriage because masturbation is self-centered, it's turned on yourself, whereas when you're having sex with a woman, you're then turned outer towards the other. Uh, this is well as illustrated in the X-rated movies when you see the love and compassion with which men treat their partners in those movies. <laughs> but I guess I shouldn't be too hard on guys who masturbate. I used to masturbate. Well, kind of. I was so good looking. Girls did it for me. They were normally chosen by lot. The darn was normal between fifth and sixth hours is kind of a big, big high school event. <laughs> but seriously, masturbation is just stupid. Um, <laughs> just it, it's 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 a troubling thing. And by the way, uh, if you want like a, um, a, a allegory for masturbation, check out C.S. Lewis's great The Great Divorce. It's a fictional account, basically, of the afterlife traveling from hell to heaven and back. There's a scene where, where a guy says he, he can't do without this, can't do without it, can't do without it. And they never say it's masturbation, but 
uh, apparently C.S. Lewis told friends that he really was referring to masturbation in that in that scene, or basically then a, a flaming angel took this, ripped this little demon off this guy's shoulder and basically broke it, slammed it down, broke its back. It's been years since I read that book, but it's but apparently it's C.S. Lewis writing about masturbation for what it's worth. But anyway, masturbation is just it's just stupid when you think about it. It shows a lack of control. It's really should be a, an intense source of shame. It's pretty animalistic, and it is. It's for the dumb. Um, I got this little clip for you from one of my favorite movies of all time, Idiocracy. The Masturbation Network, keeping America baiting for 300 years, and now Sweet Bang Tube. Oh, you just go away, baiting! Damn it! The whole gist of the of idiocracy is basically they go to the future and everyone are complete idiots because the smart people stopped having kids and the dumb people kept procreating. I'm not sure where that puts me with my seven kids. But anyways, but you know, Luke Wilson you know, wakes up in the future and being strictly average IQ back in the 2000s, he is now like a genius by comparison to the rest of these idiots. And all it is is <laughs> the movie is so funny because it just highlights stupid ways of being so the characters use the f word a lot they talk about sex all the time they all they want to do is have sex they want they want to masturbate they talk about the crotch area it's just it's just it's a funny funny movie but one one of the scenes you know is is this whole thing about masturbation because yeah, it really is just for just for idiots okay you know so so why is it dumb you can say well shasky keeps saying it's dumb but you expect us to believe it because you keep saying it well, I'll try to explain it. Right, first off, as indicated by that C.S. Lewis allegory, it's habitual and hard to resist, and therefore you're showing less control over your own sex drive, which just means a lack of control over your life in general. More subtly, consider what dumbness is, and I don't mean can't speak, but dumbness, stupidity. What is it? Well, it's, it's like a, a lack of knowledge, lack of awareness, lack of understanding. The stupid person is a person who just doesn't get it. And what is it they don't get? They don't get reality. They are not in touch with the way things are. That is what stupidity is. If you're constantly wrapping yourself into a fantasy world that does not exist, you're constantly getting in touch with the way things aren't. If you're constantly getting in touch with the way things aren't, you're not in touch with the way things are. That's why it's stupid. this guy doing a Catholic podcast and making sex jokes. I'll confess that's kind of a weakness of mine. I, I like to make people laugh and in this charged culture, you know, sex jokes are kind of front and foremost. I, I try to keep them reasonably clean though. I remember one time I was, <laughs> I was doing theology on tap and the topic veered towards to marijuana and we had some pretty devout Catholics in the, in the room along with some younger, more um, irreverent Catholics. And one of the very devout Catholics mentioned, you know, she was condemning marijuana, talking about how studies show that it stays in the sexual or, sexual organs for 30 days. And I'd, <laughs> I'd had a couple of gin and tonics and, and uh, 
I let her finish her thought where she's clearly condemning marijuana. And I, and I said, I said, I'm glad you, I'm glad you finished that thought because when you said it stayed in the sexual organs for 30 days, I thought that was an endorsement. <laughs> they, they didn't come back. Now, I will though, I will plead Thomas More. I'm a lawyer. Thomas More is a saint and he is a patron saint of lawyers and he had an aggressive sense of humor. He, he, he thought nothing of dropping the S word and things like that. In his splendid biography by, by Peter Ackroyd, The Life of Thomas More, he reproduces this poem that Thomas More wrote. And I can't read it in the Latin, so I'm just going to read the English translation, which does not rhyme. It was addressed to a, to a girl riding a horse. Who denies that you can take a man when your legs can get around even that pack horse? And this was a future saint of the Catholic Church. Peter Ackroyd goes on in the biography to mention that that Thomas More was just freaking hilarious, and you know he did he didn't like the risque. And so I figure if I'm in that company, I'm, I can't be I can't be all lost. Needless to say, like so many things in life, you're probably just safer not engaged in that in that type of talk. And you have to ask yourself, is it really that important to make someone else laugh? That I actually have to skirt, you know, walk that line towards towards the inappropriate, as I've consistently done throughout this podcast. I'm not going to answer that question for you. Just know it's out there. There is value in making other people laugh. It adds to the spice of life. But there are sinful sides of it as well, and you got to draw the line yourself. Let's do some lightning segments. One last Vegas thing. If you go to Vegas, get off the strip and go downtown. In my opinion, downtown is where it's at. It's just great. And, and not just a Fremont Street experience. Go check out El Cortez, which is about two blocks east of the Fremont Street experience. It's right on Fremont. It is an historical landmark, recognized as such, and legitimately so. It was the first casino that was taken over by the mob by Bugsy Siegel in 1945. I think they've recently redone it. They have a little sports book in there. It's quaint. Uh, my nephew tells me it was voted Las Vegas's best casino in 2017. So go check it out. By the way, a quick note on my non-gender inclusive language. I'm sure some of you have caught my references to mankind referring to man. I just mean that in the traditional sense of all humans. And I sure as frick don't mean any offense to my female listeners. It's just a traditional way of referring to things. And if I'm being 100% honest, it was early political correctness that rammed through things like humankind into the, into the language. And back when I first started to write, you know, back in high school, that was not the rule of the day yet. So I'm old enough to remember when this this clumsy, you know, humankind type stuff, and referring to people instead of man, uh, started coming through, and I just, you know, I, <laughs> just 40 years later, I still kind of resent it, um, and again, I, I also do think it's clumsy, mankind, humankind, hack out a syllable, make it easier for everyone. Well, we've entered the Advent season. It's a season that has a real, real bad tension. Yeah, all the secular celebrations because the world jumps the gun. The Christmas season doesn't start until Christmas Eve, but the whole world starts celebrating Christmas on the day after Thanksgiving, which I, quite frankly, I really enjoy it. But then on the other side, the church teaches that Advent is properly a penitential season. 
so you shouldn't be doing all that celebrating. So you have this uh, unavoidable tension between the secular and the spiritual. One possible way you can turn this to your advantage is on the penitent side, emphasize fasting. You know, because you go to these parties and you have all this food coming in, you're eating all the time. You need to keep the weight off anyway. So emphasize fasting on the penance side. That might help you offset it somewhat. I really like songs where the drummer really gets into it, but it's strictly in the background. You don't even necessarily notice how much he's going at it. A great example of this is Elvis Presley's You Gave Me a Mountain in his live performances. Check it out. You can find The Weekly Demon on YouTube. It's not my favorite medium, but when I was at that marijuana business conference two weeks ago, one of the presenters was talking about you know promoting your marijuana business, and she said the whole internet is going video. She said you have to be producing videos, you have to be on YouTube. So last week I actually downloaded some video production software and put my first product up there on YouTube. It's, it's gosh awful terrible. It'll get a lot better with the next with the next episode. I almost didn't post it because of a thing called the horn effect. The horn effect is the opposite of the halo effect. The halo effect is when people instinctively attribute to a person good traits because they have some other good trait. So the classic example is this person's good looking, therefore we assume he's smart, which is absurd. The horn effect is the opposite. Because you produce a crappy YouTube video, you must be a moron, which is also absurd. A moron just posted to YouTube anyway. Alright, sitting back here with a gin and tonic on a Thursday evening. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Middle Ages. I left you hanging two weeks ago. We were going through the Middle Ages talking about you know, the fall of the Roman Empire and how it really wasn't a fall but a gradual decay. And I said, well, I'll concede by 650... The gig is up. At that point, we're almost dead. So now the question is, okay, so 7th century AD, what was going on? At that point, you pretty much, you're, you're rock solid entering into the Dark Ages. And the history gets a little murky. What we know is fascinating, and it has implications to this day and age. You had the Franks in France, shocker, shocker. You have the Angles and the Saxons have pretty much taken over all of Eastern Britain, and then you had the Britain people, who are the like the older British, and their remnants of the Romans, and the West Side. So speaking of which, by the way, Wales, as we know it today, Wales, uh, that that has like a heavy like um, vestiges from the Roman Empire. When you think of Wales, y'all think, oh, the old Roman Empire, their descendants. That's a slight exaggeration, but kind of interesting. That basically, that's where the Roman citizens fled to. At this point, the Muslims were poised. You know, they had already overran Northern Africa, much of the Holy Lands, and they were they're poised to start um, coming into Europe, taking over the Mediterranean Sea. And that, as we've pointed out in the past, that's really what probably triggered the Dark Ages. It wasn't the fall of the Roman Empire or the quote-unquote barbarian kingdoms. It was the fact that when the Muslims came, it just screwed up everything. At this time... In the area that we call the stands, like Turkmenistan, that area of Central Asia where like, there's nothing today. I think there's five stands. In that area, you had the Khazars, K-H-A-Z-A-R-S. You had their empire. 
uh, interesting people, they converted to Judaism about this time. You know, Christianity has always gone out and tried to make disciples. Muslims did the same with the sword. Uh, but the Jews really didn't. But according to an old legend, the king of the Khazars brought in a Muslim cleric, a Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, and he asked each of them individually, you know, if my people convert to one of the three religions, which one would you choose if you can't pick your own? They converted to Judaism because the Christian priest said Judaism, and the Muslim cleric said Judaism. So they, <laughs> they opted for that one. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's a story that Nassim Taleb tells in his recent uh, book, Skin of the Game. You know, as an aside, you know, the, the Khazars were pretty formidable warriors, and for a long time they, they kept the Muslims back. I guess the Muslim chroniclers at the time said, I can't believe we're losing to these effing Jews. Another thing that happened during this time, you have the re-Christianization of Western Europe by Ireland. Keep in mind, Ireland was proselytized, converted by St. Patrick and others, but when England itself fell, Ireland didn't. After England pretty much fell, most of it fell to the pagan tribes like the Angles and the Saxons. Columbanus and other Irish monks started coming over from Ireland into England and re-Christianizing the island. Then they spread into Western Europe and Northern Europe and started Christianizing the Germans. That's significant because that's like the first instance we, we see of Catholicism spreading the word to non-believing areas of the world and then those areas of the world many many years later reciprocating and bringing Catholicism back to that same area. We're seeing that now in spades here in the United States. Western Catholicism Christianized Africa, South America and now those continents are sending their people up here to be our priests and administer the sacraments to us. Well you had the very first instance of this happening about this time you know, in the early 700s, or in the early 600s. This century is also the century of Maximus the Confessor, an underappreciated Catholic saint, also saint in the Greek Orthodox Church. I highly recommend his Centuries on Love. You can, you can find him in the Philokalia, that collection of, that Greek Orthodox collection of writings that I think so highly of. Another fascinating thing that happens during this time, the donation of Pepin. Here's the story. The Lombards were picking on the Pope. The Pope goes to Pepin, king of the Franks, and says, Hey, can you help with the Lombards? Pepin comes down, beats the hell out of the Lombards. And this happened a couple of times. And finally, Pepin's like, you know what? Take this land. You, you can have this land that surrounds Rome, pretty much like a, a swath of land that cuts through the middle of Italy, east to west, and said, these are for the Pope. Whoever's a Pope has these lands. That established the Papal States. The Papal States would continue there from, from the mid-7th century until the time of Napoleon in the 19th century. What that did, well, it did a lot of things, but one thing it did, it, it gave the Pope an independent army. You know, he had lands from which he could recruit troops. Also, wrap the church up that much more into secular politics, because now the Pope was unambiguously a secular and a spiritual ruler. This quote-unquote gift also had an impact on Papal finances. This arrangement, you know, caused the uh, the, the papacy to rely on the papal states uh, for for its income, with which it you know it, it did a lot of charitable things like establishing hospitals and helping the poor and building churches. Well, then in the 14th century, in 1309, the Pope moved the church to Avignon, France, 
as a result of this, people back at the Papal States stopped paying their taxes and paying their land rents to the Pope because he wasn't there to collect it, so they stopped paying it. That forced the Pope to start raising money through other means. Those other means then led to the corruption in the church that the reformers railed against. You know, Luther and others railed against started in 1517. Alright, let's jump back into some Taoist thought. I've long been looking forward to doing this segment. We're going to talk about Taoists as the earliest anarchists. You might recall that the essence of Taoism, or applied Taoism, is Wu Wei, W-U hyphen W-E-I, which basically means non-activity. The Taoist believes that the best course of action is always no action. Well, that flies in the face of every single person who thinks government ought to do more and more. Lao Tzu wrote what Peter Marshall in his splendid book, demanded the impossible history of anarchy calls the first anarchist manif- manifesto. And I'm just going to read this to you. Lao Tzu writes, The more laws and restrictions there are, the poorer people become. The sharper men's weapons, the more trouble in the land. The more ingenious and clever men are, the more strange things happen. The more rules and regulations, the more thieves and robbers. Therefore the sage says, I take no action and people are reformed. I enjoy peace and people become honest. I do nothing and the people become rich. I have no desires and people return to the good and simple life. That's the type of thing that makes the interventionist just cringe. You know, the interventionist always has this idea that we, we have to do something. And, and that's bad enough. But the government interventionist says, we got to do something and you got to help me do it. And if you don't help me do it, I'm going to force you to do it. And if you resist me, I'm going to put you in jail. Contrast that with the concept of Wu Wei non-activity. When you look at the concept of Wu Wei, you have to think about water. Water really does nothing, it just flows. So when it comes up to an obstacle, like a boulder, water just goes around it. Some men though would say, no that's ridiculous, that takes too long, we have to pulverize the rock. And Taoism says, that's just waste energy, just go around the rock. Well, again, there's many men who say, no, no, we're going to pulverize the rock, and that's bad enough, but the Taoists would say, fine, go ahead and pulverize the rock, I don't care. But then the government interventionist type man says, no, you Taoists, come over here and help me pulverize the rock. And the Taoist says, I, I don't want to help you pulverize the rock. And he says, no, you're going to, I'm going to put you in jail. And then so now the Taoist is forced to help out with the interventionist type, whereas Taoism mostly is just the, the philosophy of just, just being left alone. Leave us alone so we can let others alone. That's all we we're asking for. But the government type doesn't want to do that. But so you might be thinking, well, you know, if government did, did nothing, we'd have, you know, quote unquote anarchy, which has gotten a bad name. And I'll explain in a later podcast why even the late 19th century people characterized as anarchists were not anarchists. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, anarchy is basically says, yeah, men are naturally good and peaceful. That on one level kind of cuts against Christian theology. It's like, well, do you, do, do you deny original sin? I think it can be argued that Taoists do deny original sin because they talk about if people are left alone, they'll go to their own peaceful inclinations. Well, let's face it, the vast bulk of people out there, if left alone, are peaceful. That's not to say they're without sin. You know, maybe they're committing all sorts of perverted sex acts for all we know behind closed doors, but that doesn't mean they're violent against their neighbor. But we do know that every government act is an act of force against one's neighbor. That is the essence of government that has any authority or power whatsoever. 
We also know that the people who hold the reins of government of power also have original sin. And that's why you don't want them to have that much power because they have authority. And again, we can go on this for a long time. We're kind of getting away from the Taoist attitude. But just because the Taoist puts minimum emphasis on original sin does not mean that we can't learn a lot about them uh, regarding how to conduct our own affairs and, more importantly perhaps, how the government ought to keep out of our affairs and not engage in so much activity. On top of all this, keep in mind that government does all sorts of things today that doesn't even pretend to be protecting us from our neighbors. This I think the Taoists would really, really, really object to because it's the government trying to mold man, trying to force us in the government's image of what we ought to be. I mean, just, just consider the student loan situation. I mean, this thing is a debacle. And it all stems from the government making the decision that more and more people ought to go to college. On the one hand, you could say, oh, they just want people to have the option of going to college. But that quickly shades into all men ought to go to college. And they had that subtle turning, and that kind of perverts kind of perverts society, because probably most men ought not to go to college. But yet, that's what people are told now. The high school graduate who doesn't go to college somehow feels like a loser, and that's absurd. But that's government molding, and that's what the Taoists would say. That's exactly what government should not be doing. The more it molds, the more it twists and perverts man's nature. All right, that's it for this week's episode. Remember, please go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, tell your friends and family, go to the Weekly Demon Facebook page and follow it, or better yet, like it. Also, check out the Weekly Demon Twitter feed. Until next week, thanks for listening.